Good morning, everyone. My name is Emily, and it's my joy to read God's Word with you this morning. Can I encourage you to get out your Bible or your device and turn to Romans chapter 6. And we're going to be reading from verse 1 to verse 14. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. Well, hi, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is uh, Trav, and we'd love to chat to you after the service. Now, we've got a bit of an interactive moment here. I wonder if uh, anyone here will know what the acronym ATM stands for. You can just tell me if you know, you know, the, where you get your money from when it's... when. Yeah, I heard it. Automatic teller machine, very good. Does anyone here know what PIN stands for? P-I-N, you know, you put it, your PIN in to unlock your phone. Personal identification number, great. You might see where this is going. Anyone know what PC stands for? I'm a Mac person myself, but PC? Personal computer. There we go. Good job, everyone. Uh, these are all uh, what's known as RAS syndrome, these acronyms known as RAS syndrome, which stands for Redundant Acronym Syndrome Syndrome. Because what we do with these words is we still say the last letter out loud after we use the acronym for them, right? We don't say ATM, we say ATM machine. You don't just put in your pin, you put in your pin number. That's my PC computer over there. We do this all the time. It's a redundant acronym syndrome syndrome. But it's not just in acronyms as well. The phrases where we can have these redundancies, right? Where we say, 
I saw it with my own eyes. No one thinks you're doing your seeing with someone else's eyes. That's how seeing works, right? But we say these things, you know, that's my regular routine. That's what a routine is. It's regular. There's no irregular routine. It's just irregularities. That it doesn't make sense. And we, we, it looks silly, sounds silly when you think about it, but we do it all the time. We're, we're all silly in these ways, right? There's so many things that we say, like a safe haven. If it's not safe, it's not a haven. It's cease and desist, null and void, personal opinion, a brief summary, pick and choose, fall down, rise up, true fact. It's a true fact, not one of those other kind of facts that aren't true. We've said all of these things at some point in our life. I've said a whole number of these things and they're phrases and words and acronyms that just have these redundancies in there. And I think what we do is we just kind of accept them and maybe assume that there's some kind of emphasis in there and then we just move on. And the reason why I bring this up is because today we're looking at the Apostles' Creed and I think at first glance it can feel like this line in the Apostles' Creed is a lot like this. The line is, Jesus Christ was crucified, died and was buried. And I think it's easy for us to see these three words together, kind of merge them into one and just be like, Jesus died. Maybe assume there's some kind of emphasis in there and then just move on. But what I want us to do together today is to look at each of these three words and to see how they are are saying something different and uniquely necessary. But not just that they're unique and different from each other, but also I hope that we'll see how Jesus has transformed each of these words to mean something that is different and unique from what they used to mean. So how about I pray and ask God that he'll help us today. Let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you're a God who uh, loves to reveal yourself to us and is a personal God. And so we pray that you would indeed reveal your truths to us and convict us of them by the power of your spirit. And Father, we pray that this would lead us to a deeper understanding of you, a deeper relationship with you and a deeper love for you as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first word of this part of the Apostles' Creed is that he was crucified. And I think that we can all agree that crucifixion isn't a nice thing to talk about. That's kind of exactly the point of it. It was used by the Romans and some might say perfected by the Romans at the time of Jesus as something that wasn't just going to kill a person, but it would do it slowly and painfully, and it would make a public spectacle of them. And Roman citizens themselves were rarely, very rarely executed in this way. It was considered to be too terrible for even their own citizens to use on their own people. The soldiers would strip the person naked so they had no dignity in their death. They would then hammer in large railroad spike-type nails into their hands, not little nails, but large ones into their wrists and one into their feet. 
And they, they'd be really careful not to hit any major arteries as they did this because they didn't want the person to die too quickly. They didn't want it to be over too quickly. They wanted everyone to see the person's slow and painful death. And once they were nailed to the cross, they were then raised up so that everyone could get a good look at this person's shame and suffering. And we read that as Jesus hung there on the cross, he quoted a psalm of humiliation, Psalm 22, as he said, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And that psalm continues to say in Psalm 22, he says, uh, the writer says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. This is not a pleasant thing. And that was the point of it. And it can seem really difficult to understand why anyone, why Jesus would willingly go towards a death like that. Because it's not just that Jesus endured the shame and the pain of the cross either. A long time before Jesus' death, it was written in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 21, uh, it says here, If anyone is found guilty of an offence deserving death, the death penalty and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree, you are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse." A person would be considered cursed by God if they were executed on a tree, on the wood of a tree. Cursed would just mean rejected by God. It would mean cut off from his blessings. And so crucifixion wasn't just a death. That's not what's meant by that word in the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, which meant it was a painful and shameful death. It was a cursed death. And this is the death that God chose, this painful and shameful death. It's pretty radical that we would say that Jesus came into the world for the very purpose of dying and he willingly went to this kind of death on a cross. But what he did in dying this kind of death is to transform the curse of the cross, to transform the shame of the cross for those who are united with him. God didn't take something that was already good or already kind of okay or just a little not great. God took something that was the worst and he transformed it into the best. Because the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3 that we are the ones who are actually under the curse. He says in chapter 3 verse 10 of Galatians, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it's written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Everyone who doesn't do everything. That's all of us, right? No one's perfect. Without Jesus, we're the ones who haven't done everything that's written in the book of the law. It doesn't matter how hard you try, none of us have done everything that's required of us all the time. 
And so without Jesus, we're the ones who are under the curse. We're the ones who are rejected by God, cut off from God, cut off from his blessings. And Paul continues in this chapter of Galatians, chapter 3. He says in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. Jesus endured the curse of the crucifixion so that it could be transformed to be the very instrument to bring blessings to those who are united with Christ. Through Jesus who became a curse for us, the blessings of Abraham to be God's people, to be accepted by God, are now ours. Through Jesus who became a curse for us, we're able to receive the Holy Spirit, God himself. And the instrument that the Romans had used to bring about shame and disgrace has become the very thing that we can now boast in. God took something like crucifixion that was just the worst and he transformed it into the best. And in the Apostles' Creed, we're saying, I believe in Jesus who is crucified, who transformed it from something shameful and cursed into something that has brought us blessing and is worthy of us to boast in. He was crucified and died, we say in the Apostles' Creed. And it might seem like saying that Jesus died is redundant after saying that he was Crucified. Now, from what I could find, there's, there's only been ever three recorded cases of Roman crucifixion where people have actually survived the crucifixion itself. And in those three cases, two of those people died later in the physician's hands. They took them down, but they didn't recover. And so only ever one case of someone surviving. Crucifixion was a foregone conclusion that it would result in death. And so it might seem like saying that Jesus died is is just saying that. Crucified, and of course, why would we say he died? Because he was crucified. And, And just like crucifixion, I think we can all agree that death isn't a nice thing to talk about. You know, it's the thing that makes us sad when we think about our deaths and the deaths of people that we know and love because it means goodbyes and it means full stops and it doesn't feel nice. And I can remember when I was about seven years old, I have no idea why, but for some reason the, the thought of death entered my mind and, and scared me and shocked me and, and upset me. And I can remember running to my parents and saying to them, Death's scary. I'm, I don't want to die. What happens? And I can remember my mum said to me, she said, Travis, you're seven. You don't need to worry about this now. You know, you've got a long life ahead of you. Worry about it later. And, you know, that kind of makes sense to me because it's not nice to think about it. And so, you know, a seven-year-old, why would you want to dwell on that and think about that? 
And it's interesting, I reckon we can be more comfortable with saying things like, you know, no one's perfect, everyone makes mistakes, no one keeps all the letter of the law completely. You know, no one's perfect. We can feel really comfortable to say that, but we're less comfortable to say everyone's going to die one day. And yet both of them are true for everyone. And, and more than that, they are both deeply connected. In the chapter that was read out earlier from M in Romans 6, it says at the end of that that the wages of sin is death. God's justice requires that sin be paid with death, which means that the cost of saying no one's perfect, the cost of that is that everyone dies. That's what that means. No one is perfect, which means that everyone dies because the wages of sin is death. If you do just a little bit of work, then you get, you know, a little bit of wage. If you do just a little bit of sin, then you get a little bit of death. But a little bit of death is too much for me, too much for you. We can't recover from any amount of death. And so Jesus died so that he could pay that wage for us that we couldn't pay. He didn't have any wages of sin that he needed to deal with for himself. He went to the cross to pay for our sin. So that those of us who are united with him are freed from having to pay that price ourselves because it's just too steep for us. Earlier in Romans chapter 3, you might have heard in verse Uh, Sorry, chapter 6, you might have heard in verse 3. He talks about those who are baptised into Christ Jesus, meaning baptised into his death. And then he continues in verse 5 to say, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. And I think that this is just such an incredible and beautiful truth of the gospel, that our unity in Jesus' death means that sin is powerless to condemn us. You are no longer enslaved by it. And and the writer of Romans, Paul, he continues in chapter 6. He says in verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Your sin doesn't condemn you anymore. You can consider yourselves dead to it already, but alive now in Christ Jesus. The price has been paid. And what that means is that even though we'll all still die one day, you know, 
physical bodies aren't going to last forever, that those who are united with Christ can actually welcome death. We can welcome it because it doesn't define our future. And something much more beautiful than that, it puts an end to our sinning. Jesus has already defined our future. How amazing that God took something like death that is just the worst and he transformed it into something that is just the best. We believe that Jesus Christ was crucified and died and was buried. And I'll be honest, I think this this third part of the creed has always felt like just a pragmatic thing to say. He was crucified and he died. And then what happened? He was buried. We're just telling the rest of the story because that's what you do with someone who's died, right? You, we cover them. We, we honour them. We bury them or we burn them and scatter their ashes. We, we transition their body to the ground. Now, because Jesus was crucified, this actually wasn't the normal thing to do for those who were crucified. As I said, crucifixion was all about the shame, which meant that even after the person had died, their bodies were left up on the cross on display. There was no dignity even in death. And so we read in John's gospel, in his account of what happened uh, to Jesus and his body, he says that there were cer- special circumstances. Uh, in John chapter 19 from verse 31, if you want to write it down, and, and you can read all of uh, this chapter, it's, it's a great thing to read. Uh, it says from verse 31, Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and their bodies be taken away. So it was a special occasion and they asked Pilate to have the body taken down, and so the body wasn't left on the cross. But then we read further what happened, verse 38. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came, bringing a mixture of about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, and they took Jesus' body and wrapped it in linen cloths with the fragrant spices, according to the burial custom of the Jews. There was a garden in the palace where he was crucified. A new tomb was in the garden. No one had yet been placed in it. They placed Jesus there because of the Jewish day of preparation and since the tomb was nearby. And so we read that he was crucified and that he died, but that he was also buried, which wasn't necessarily meant to happen to someone who is crucified. But also he was buried according to the the burial custom of the Jews. He was buried like any other Jewish man was buried. And this kind of completes Jesus' fully human life. You know, everyone comes into the world through the tomb and exits, enters through the womb and exits through the tomb. We might say like from the cradle to the grave, right? That's, that's just true for everyone. And that's what happened to Jesus as well. He, God came into this world in the flesh in the person 
of Jesus. We're going to hear that story at Christmas time. Jesus lived a, a human life, a perfect sinless life, but he lived on this earth physically and he died a physical human death and his body was placed in a tomb to re- return to the dirt just like everyone else. You know, this is that reality for all of us, that that is the place our bodies are destined, from the cradle to the grave. That's the story. And yet instead of the grave signifying the end of Jesus' life from the womb to the tomb, we read that Jesus rose from the grave. And we're going to look at this a little bit more in detail uh, later on, it comes up later in the Apostles' Creed. I feel like I don't need to issue any spoiler alerts or anything like that. We know how it ends. The Apostle Paul argues in Romans 6 that we had read out earlier, in verse 4, that we, therefore we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. That normal transition from womb to the tomb has been transformed because that's not the end. That's not the final place. The tomb becomes the new life. The grave isn't where Jesus' life ended It's where our new life in him began. As we've been raised to new life when Jesus rose and our old life under the curse and under the condemnation of sin has been put to death and it's been buried. And the new life of Jesus rising from the tomb where death had no hold on him is our new life. God took something like the grave, like burial, that's just the worst and transformed it into the best. And so as we say the Apostles' Creed together, we say, I believe Jesus Christ was crucified, that Jesus became a curse for us so that we might be free from the curse of the law and become God's blessed people. That what was designed to be the most shameful public display of defeat has become our boast, our victory cry. And we say, I believe that he died, that the price for our sin has been paid already. And I believe that he was buried, but that the ground is not our final resting place anymore. Whether in a casket or sprinkled in ashes, we are not simply destined for the dirt. Because of Jesus, our present and our final and eternal destination is life and to live with him. How amazing to witness the love of God in these three words in the creed and to know that Jesus did this because he loved us. Even though... We're all not perfect. Even though we all sin, we all reject God in so many different ways. Through Jesus, God is able to take something like us who are just the worst 
and transform us to be more like Jesus, who's just the best. Maybe this is good news that you needed to hear today to be reminded of. Maybe this is good news that you're hearing for the first time today and it'd be great to chat more about what this looks like for you to put your trust in Jesus. Maybe this is good news that you need to share with someone today to remind them and encourage them. I pray that Jesus' crucifixion and death and burial will remind you to live in love and obedience in response to that love that Jesus has shown us. Not to earn God's love, but because you are loved. Let me leave us with this part of Romans 6. Final parting words from Paul. He says from verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much that Jesus came into this world to save sinners like us. We thank you so much that he endured the cross, that he defeated death and that he rose again from the grave. We thank you so much for what all of this means for us who have put our trust in him. Father, we pray that you will help us to remember this truth every day and to live out in love and in light of your love. Father, we pray that you will strengthen us by this Holy Spirit that we know we have received as Christ has made a way. And Father, we pray that you will help us to live in obedience as we share your good news and your gospel with others and proclaim and declare your victory over sin and death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.